Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans. It's Denisha. Hey, everybody. It's Erin. Okay, so we have recorded such an amazing show for you. We sat down with Dr. Victoria Ferris, who honestly gave us the radical truth. And when we have these conversations, radical truth is so necessary. No sugarcoating. And we didn't get any of that for this episode. This is a CE eligible episode. Um, So I'm going to give you the first code right off the bat. It is babies. So if you are listening to this and you want CEs for this show, type babies in the first spot. All right. I'm excited. This is such a, like, again, one of my favorite episodes. I think that not no shade to like any of the past, you know, guests that we've had, but for real, like this one, I think it's just the honest truth is kind of just laid out there. So um, I'm really excited for everybody to hear it. Roll it. All right, everybody, welcome to today's episode. We are joined today uh, by Dr. Victoria Ferris. So welcome. Call you Victoria, you. Dr. Ferris. What do, what do you want? <laughs> is Victoria good? Oh, please. Victoria is always good. Excellent. Um, so why don't you give us like a little bit of introduction about yourself? Tell us um, kind of like the work you do, maybe some background on your education, whatever you want to share with the listeners. Okay, great. I always feel like intros are the hardest part. Um, let's see. I please. It is awkward. Uh, Victoria is great. Uh, I am a New Yorker, born and raised. I live most of my life in and around New York City area. Um, I think that matters because I talk kind of fast and um, I wear a lot of black, but you can't see that right now. And actually, I'm not wearing black for once in my life, so I guess it's irrelevant. Um, I have worked primarily in higher education and with um, in the arts. And uh, so my mom used to joke that I went to college and I liked it so much I never wanted to leave. And I started running residence halls and then working in student life and student support services. Um, ultimately I served as a Dean and worked in student conduct and student support in the Dean of students office. And throughout my career, I saw the ways that inequities showed up on the campuses I worked in. Um, and I think we talked a lot about the inequities amongst students and how students were served and experienced our campuses. But increasingly, I also saw how that played out amongst my colleagues and staff. Um, and so my interest just sort of continued to grow and my commitment continued to grow in what it looks like to, um, disrupt those types of inequities and also to engage with them. And so uh, a couple of years ago, I guess now it's been about four or five years, I decided to pursue my doctorate. And, uh, that was in part because, um, higher education loves a hierarchy and we love to value people's worth based on the letters after their names. Um, and so I was kind of told that it was time for me to get the degree if I wanted to get the next job. And so I went in with that in mind, which I, I think is relevant because, um, I was very much playing by the rules of the game, um, which is, uh, all tied to 
<laughs> racial inequities and um, white supremacy culture, but we'll get to that later, I'm sure. Um, and so anyway, I decided to focus my research on um, kind of allyship and what that means and what it looks like. And the more research I did, the more I found that in like the, the research literature, allyship was often described and defined by white people. And I don't think that's uh, for us to de define as, as it relates to racial um, uh, equity. And so the research that I conducted was uh, from the perspectives of people of color who worked in higher education, um, what, what racism, number one, what it looked like and how it manifested in higher education and education workspaces and what uh, they wish their white colleagues and supervisors would do to disrupt it. And so um, through that research, I have created a model um, for effective allyship or accompliceship or change agents. I use those words uh, interchangeably in some ways because I think they mean slightly different things. Um, but we can talk about the word allyship and, and why I think it can be a tricky word if you want to. Um, but once I uh, finished that, that research, I realized that what I had was bigger than um, my job in one place. And I felt that... Um, the participants in my study invested in me so profoundly that it called me to find ways to um, almost be like a conduit of that message into other as many spaces as possible. And I committed to reinvest all of the energy that was invested in me by getting in front of as many people and in as many places to talk about um, microaggressions and racism and how white people can be more effective allies and, and accomplices and change agents. And so for the last two years, I've worked full-time uh, with my own business, I, Ferris Consulting, and I go um, I go into workspaces or I used to pre-COVID-19. Now I go into people's living rooms <laughs> via um, you know, the internet and Zoom or whatever. Uh, but I work in education, education-adjacent, um, nonprofit spaces, spaces that I think where we think there's a lot of we I think we all think we're talking the talk and walking the walk right like I think we think about education as liberal and open-minded and development focused and people focused and there's so much racism um, and I think the same thing is really true for nonprofits and um, and so those are the spaces that I primarily work in and I'm excited to go into any space to talk about this message because I think it's that important um, and I also uh, host courses and I do coaching and um, in this time where people are kind of dealing with the unknown and working from home, I've been just doing more virtual webinars and workshops and really whatever ways to engage with folks. I run a book club. Um, my goal is to be so relentlessly focused on engaging other white people about how we can more effectively disrupt racism and disrupt our own racism that we can kind of collectively see change. Um, and so I try to find lots of different ways to do that. <laughs> so um, I use she, her pronouns and identify as a queer, white, cisgender woman. Um, and I have a variety of other privileged identities, but I think those are sort of my primary identities that it's important to know in, in the beginning of the conversation. Thank you so much for that. Um, I feel like just from your introduction alone, we can see that before you came on, you know, you told me a little bit about yourself and obviously I knew a little bit about you by reading, but I hear activism strong all through your introduction and it, and Aaron and I have had the conversation on this show and we've talked about, you know, the activity that is required. And so just hearing the name of your model disrupt, disrupt, I can hear the activeness of it. 
Um, and when thinking about allies versus accomplice versus uh, change agents, Aaron, we discussed on this show before, you know, those differences to us and my um, viewpoint of allyship is very different from accomplice behavior. Accomplice behavior to me is is more active. And I would love to hear um, your perspective on the differences between those words. And I know you use allyship in your work. And so there may or may not be a full difference between the two, but that's just, um, those are my relational frames. When I think about accomplices, I think about the folks that are um, putting their bodies on the line, that are talking to other folks that are from their privileged classes, that are actually, you know, voting in alignment with the interests for uh, minority groups. And that is what an accomplice speaks to me. When I think of allyship, I think of the folks who, you know, I, I love all people. I think you're great and you have a friend in me. And I think, you know, very much more inactive, a passive stance, so to speak. And so um, change agent also is interchangeable with uh, accomplice to me, very active as well, that person specifically. Um, and, you know, very diligently works to change systems. And so, yeah, I would love to hear your um, viewpoint on those three words. Yeah, thank you. That's such a great question. Um, and I, I'm, I agree with a lot of what you just said. I think I feel similarly. I, I think um, I, I like to give real talk, real. Uh, my sister jokes about me being like um, true. What does she say? She always says something like um, real talk with truth. Dr. Ferris or something. Um, but um, just, you're the truth yeah. teller. Yeah, I, I mean, I a philosophy that I have just as a frame is like, is that the truth is love in action. And I think that... Um, I think that we, especially as white people, are not often seeing or appreciating or understanding or, or receiving the truth. We get told this like really whitewashed version of things that lets us believe a story that isn't real. And so um, I am just going to give you real talk right here, but I think of it as like an investment of love. Um, but I, I think allyship is feel good white people talk. Like I think um, when I, like, when I think of myself as an ally, it was a way that I would like pat myself on the back for doing like, not a whole lot. Um, and, and so I, um, take my lead always, um, from communities of color, but most, most specifically my philosophy is to follow black and indigenous women and, um, femmes and, um, and follow trans folks of color. Um, and what I hear it, from communities of color and from black women specifically is like, we don't want your allyship. We want your accompliceship. We want you in it with us. Um, Brittany Packnett, um, I heard her talk about this uh, uh, several times, but um, which really shaped my thinking around it, um, which I think accompliceship is action. I, I think exactly what you just said, um, Denisha, like if there's not action in your allyship, it's just like feel good nonsense. It's not allyship. Um, and so I think of accomplices as also putting your bodies on the line and whether that means like physically, I have like, you know, been arrested protesting and I, and because of my privileged body, I think that's a way that I can, um, demonstrate accomplishment and allyship. Um, but it doesn't just mean that. I think it also means leveraging spaces that I have access to because of my whiteness and utilizing every opportunity to be a 
a space to not allow racist behaviors, um, ad- racist attitudes, racist jokes, or other forms of oppression, also not, not just race. Um, but I think that we, as white folks, think about allyship and accompliceship when we're in mixed spaces and when there's someone, a person of color who can see our work and sort of it, we get that moment of like feeling like we did a good job. Um, but if you're not, if you're not um, gauging in all spaces, I don't think that you are an ally or an accomplice. Um, if you're not sort of relentlessly committing to the work, the opt-in and opt-out, I think, is a privilege. So to me, an accomplice is somebody who is, um, you know, entrenched in the work beyond um, when it's convenient or when they when it feels good. I think accomplices... Um, take consequences for their behaviors and their actions. Um, and I, I think the only person who can decide if somebody is an accomplice or an ally or a change agent is the person um, who's kind of in, in the fight next to you. So like, I, I often say that there, for, for, there are plenty of people who have said to me, like, you're an accomplice, like, thank you for being in this with me. And there are plenty of others who are like, I don't know you, like, I, or I don't, or that's not enough. Like what my barometer is of an accomplice isn't what that is, right? Or what you're doing. And I think um, it's really important to remember that this is just not a self-proclaimed title. Like, I don't get to decide I'm an ally or an accomplice. Um, somebody else may say that to me because of what they see and, and like my actions. Um, but it's also active and it doesn't, you don't just get it. It's not like you get the title. Like I got my EDD and now like no one can ever take that away from me. Like I don't ever have to read another book and I'm still going to be a doctor, but the same isn't true for an ally or an accomplice. It's a relentless every day, all the time action. Um, in the same way is that like, I think not the same ways, but in similar ways to the fact that racism is an all the time, every day, always action. Like if I'm opting in and out, that is privilege. That's not accomplishment. So those are just some of my things. But I, I think ally is a way that makes us kind of just feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little backstory before you came on the show, I, I had to give myself a little reminder because the way that white whiteness works um, and white supremacy is that especially as a person of color, Um, It seems a lot that white folks get to go into spaces and they will give you the very feel good answer that sounds like, you know, once again, I love all people or I believe that we should all have the same rights. And a lot of times that is enough, unfortunately, because, you know, people of color are expected to accept the breadcrumbs. So it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just so happy that you don't hate me. And that's the bare minimum um, that we expect from folks in a system set up like ours. And so I had to like remind myself, I didn't know what this conversation was fully going to be like. I read your work, but I haven't seen you speak. And so it was like a reminder not to prop up whiteness that, you know, it's, we we do have a right to hold folks accountable to the system that is in place and to not just be okay with the peanuts that are given like, yeah, you know, I, I love talking about diversity because I just believe all people um, should be free. And so that's not enough. I love the fact that you said, but I do want to um, give you the kudos because um, you know, Aaron and I were having a conversation about decolonization versus diversity right before you got on the podcast this morning. And there is such a difference. The work that we're doing is not feel good 
like we are here to change things. And so um, I love what you said about the truth is love in action. Um, to make this like behavior analytic a little bit, I just want to like tact some of the things that I was hearing in your responses. Um, you said that, you know, white folks have been given a story um, and they believe one that isn't real. And so just thinking about diffusion and being fused with these stories of um, being taught from a very young age, what's better, what's not, you know, we're putting all these frames in reference to like who, um, who is better than who's worse than um, in terms of like culture, we look at racial differences, skin tone differences, like all of those stories are there. And at some point we're going to have to be able to diffuse from them. Um, and, but the reinforcers are there as well for folks to not really have to do the work when you go into a space and you go into a space, maybe it's whether around other white folks or whether it's around people of color and they, and they give you those kudos for the bare minimum. It's like, Oh, look, I get to, I get to seem like a good person because we all do believe we're great people, regardless of the behaviors that we engage in. It could be the worst behaviors in the world. And we'll still turn around and say that we are great people. Um, but getting those, those um, discrete moments of reinforcement from uh, individuals, for just doing bare minimum, um, that's that's likely to just allow us to think that we're on the right track regardless. Um, and I just, I guess the last part of this and something that I heard is, you know, you were talking about the ongoing action of it. And so what happens when we start to create um, a value around equity, right? A value around disrupting the system is that, it's never ceasing that at any moment that you're going to be able to track your behavior, say, is this in alignment with actually dismantling the, the largest system or is it not? And so um, being able to then choose the direction that you want to go. So um, I heard a lot in your response and um, yeah, Aaron, did you have anything that you wanted to say? I, yeah, it kind of coming off. So, all right. So I was reading about culture um, for class and I have this book that I like will write thoughts down in and it's separate from like notes that I keep for class. The book is actually called Half-Assed Ideas. And it's like this, you know, just like thoughts. But what I wrote down, I was talking about culture and cultural evolution and cultural practices and how those shift over time. And I, for like the survival of the group um, in general. And it says that what it was saying was that it, for cultural practices to to change or for culture to evolve those, like if these things are harmful, then we need to re-examine to determine if they serve the long-term, if they're useful for the long-term like welfare of a culture. Right. And so I started writing down because I'm, I, I'm getting pissed as I'm reading this and I'm like, but what if the dominant culture has all that power? What if they hold all of the reinforcers and access to all of those reinforcers? And then, so you're saying, okay, re-examine all that. Well, what about their bias? What about their stories? What about all these things that they're fused with? And then, okay, now we have people that are challenging that, but they're, um, you know, they're dealing with I extreme amounts of like uh, oppression and internalized oppression, minority stress and all that. And it's like, how do we change that? And it's funny, um, Victoria, because, you know, listening to you talk over the past couple of weeks and, um, you know, I'm attending the, the, the workshop that you're doing, but I wrote down, I was like, there's something to the people who want to disrupt the system. And the word like disrupt is actually in the notes because I think there's true value to people who want to see that change joining, not just like you're saying allyship, like Woo, wave my little like rainbow flag or post like black lives matter or f f uh, like go out and run two point two, three miles 
on Friday and then go back off into um, happy world. I don't have to worry about my safety when I go run, but here I'm going to take my picture and hashtag this. And then I do nothing after that. And so, um, but I think that like, that's, you know what? I, I don't know. I'm starting to like rant on these podcasts. I like, <laughs> I don't know. Yes, it's like, angry. <laughs> seriously, no, I'm pissed. Like I am, I'm pissed. Like it's, but it's like, those people who are saying they want to do that, but they're not. And they're, it's like, give me a pat on the back because I went out and I hashtagged and I ran 2.23 miles and I stand with all these people. It's, 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 it's crap. It's, it's fake. It's, you know, anyway, and rant <laughs> um, real fast. We want to give the first password for like the, for the CE, right? All right, y'all. So the first uh, password, if you're collecting the CEs for this episode is going to be strong Island. Our um, presenter today, Dr. Ferris is from New York and she represents long Island. So if you're collecting CEs, go ahead and write down strong Island in the first box. Okay. Explain for me. You just said Long Island, but now you're saying Strong Island. Where did that come from? Explain that. Victoria, you can tell me like what that means. Oh, um, when I hear Strong Island, I, real talk, I just think about like like white frat boy types um, who like to call Strong Island, like Long Island, Strong Island and go like buff up at the gym. Um, so it's a little, a little kind of... Uh, I think a play on the stereotypes about Long Island. And so I'm here for it. And also I'm like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, it is You're definitely good. everything. <laughs> it's, it's real. It also, okay. Victoria didn't register. Um, Strong Island. No, never mind. I was thinking about, I was thinking about a natural disaster after, what was that? Not Katrina. Um, Hurricane um, Sandy. Hurricane Sandy. Uh-huh. Um, there's a frame that I'm pulling up from there. Was that another reason why it was called Strong Island as well? Because of the I, recovery efforts? Yeah, I think it got pulled in there, like Long Island Strong or Strong Island. And, you know, I mean, we we really, we really love where we live. And sometimes we get a little big about it. <laughs> it's all good. Long Island's cool. Yeah, you know, what was jumping out to me while I was listening to both of you talk was accountability. Um, and I think that um, I think that there has to be accountability in the work. Um, I often say that if nobody has told you, if nobody's given you the feedback that you have, have caused harm, um, it doesn't mean that you haven't caused harm. It probably means that you're not in community with people where they feel that you can be number one, trusted to give that feedback or number two, that you have the kind of rapport and relationship to, to be able to say that. Um, and, and I think that um, if there's no accountability in the work, then, then it, how do you know it even matters? And so, you know, Aaron, you were just talking about the, the run with mod. And I mean, I could rant on this like all flipping day. Um, but, but I think we have to make clear distinctions in, in all of this. I mean, you, you were talking about histories and who gets to tell stories. And like, I take my kids to the Natural History Museum and we get in front of each scene and I ask them, who do you think told this story? Who's represented in this story? And who gets to tell stories? And what would it look like if somebody different told the story? And that's not just like it started when we were looking at, and, and the Natural History Museum has this, um, in New York, has this. Uh, like panorama, I don't know what the, the exhibits are called, but 
And it's essentially the like Native Americans and the pilgrims. And it's supposed to be this like unity thing that's like so offensive and racist. But what I appreciate is what they did is instead of taking it down, they filled the glass with like all the critiques of what's wrong with it and how it reflects a dominant message and how like from what the the clothing that the Native Americans are wearing and the indigenous peoples are wearing um, and why that's not accurate and why it's offensive and like for all it like kind of layers through. And, and on one hand, I was like, this is awesome. And literally you would have seen me and my kids like sitting on the floor, reading each line and talking about each part of the, like, I'm this mom. My kids are like, do we have to do this again? Um, but I think we have to be relentless about the truth. And I, I think it, it, we have to do that with our students, with our kids, with each other, with our parents, with our grandparents. We have to be relentless about the truth. We have to be asking whose story is this? Who's, who benefits from this story? How do we know it's true? Why do I believe this story over this story? I mean, in any example where we see these like horrific lynchings and murders of um, black men, but of, of people of color across the board, um, there becomes this narrative about like, well, what was he doing and what was he wearing and was he dangerous and was he this? And I'm like, why aren't we asking the same questions about the white guys with the guns or, or the people with the guns? Because they're also not always white. You don't have to be white to uphold white supremacy and anti-blackness and anti-black violence, which is a, a separate conversation for a separate day, um, perhaps. But um, yes, and I'm ready to have that conversation. I would be here for it whenever you want to. Um, but I think it's a complex conversation and I worry sometimes about how white people then absolve themselves from the racist because they're like, well, see, you can be racist too. And I'm like, that doesn't make me less racist. It just means that racism is wildly pervasive. Um, so I, I sometimes like worry, you know, white people love to flip back to like black on black crime or like to point out when the police officer wasn't a white person and as if that changes the role that white people play in white supremacy. Um, but we're masters at deflection. I mean, we're just masters at it. But I think that there has to be like relentless questioning and openness to seeing the truth and, and self-reflection, like interrogating our own assumptions about, again, why one story, one person's story is more believable than another's story and why that is and who I, whose stories I value and who I struggle to believe and listen to. And, um, you know, the way these videos keep unfolding with this um, Ahmad Arbery case is mind boggling. Like who gives a fuck what the guy was doing? Who gives a fuck? I don't care if he actually burglarized somebody's home. He did not deserve to die in the street. He, you know, a, a, a no individual gets to be a, 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 you know, the judge, jury, persecutor, all the things in one. That's not the way our country is supposed to work, even though it is the way that it was designed. Um, but I think we, we the, who's, who is it that wants to know what this guy was doing first? It's white people. Want, white people want to make sense of it, but there's no sense to be made. The sense is that racism lets white people believe that we can be the judge and jury and, and hold people accountable to our own values and beliefs. If we spent half as much time interrogating our own beliefs as we spent trying to dig up videos of innocent black people or even black people who have committed crimes to try to make sense of their murders, I mean, everything would be different. Like, focus on you. Stop trying to figure out what this guy was doing. I rant too, Erin. Um, I know. I was so excited. <laughs> Seriously. But, 
there has to be accountability also. Like there has to be, we have to be in spaces where someone can say, like, I, I loved what you said, Denisha, about like not propping up whiteness. Um, like, no, like the bar is so low that we hand out cookies for like barely being decent. And then we prop it up and people think that that white people start to think that that's the bar. And I'm like, no, that's not the bar. Uh, the bar is justice mm -hmm. and liberation and equity, right? But I think that accountability is essential. So, yes, I felt like that rant. I mean, that rant is our show. So welcome. Um, <laughs> I'm not the only person ranting on this show anymore. <laughs> um, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And one of the things is like, there's no... I feel like when it comes to racism and one being able to try to make sense of, oh, look, this person of color did this or, oh, look, this black person did that. There is not like folks aren't keying into like contextual differences. Right. And and, and we don't really understand uh, nuances. And when I say we, I just mean like larger society as a whole um, that this world has been set up in one particular way. I say this a lot, but like everyone drank the Kool-Aid. So yeah, you're going to see folks of color that are acting in alignment with their own oppression. You're going to see folks of any minority uh, class operating in alignment with their own oppression. And, and that's because we were taught the same things. And so, um, you know, considering that I would love to, you know, sit down and have another conversation uh, just on that piece, the internalized oppression piece. Um, and it's some, you know, Aaron and I have briefly gone over on the show, but it's so important to be able to even consider the differences between those two. And then while, because you said it, and just for any folks listening that might've been, well, well, what about black on black crime does not exist in the way that folks who try to make um, their arguments, um, uh, makes sense. And so there is a such thing as community violence. White folks commit the most crimes against white people. Black folks commit the most crimes against black people. Crimes are committed as a method of convenience and proximity. So of course you're going to see that if you put the statistics up, you're going to see that. Yeah. Like I said, the majority of crimes committed against each other are folks that looks like that look like themselves. So to, to bring that in the argument, um, which is done, well, number one, as a racist tool to kind of once again pin Black folks as aggressive or put them in their place. Um, but it's just, it's just, you know, um, ideologically, like, false. Um, are ideologically skewed, I should say that. Um, I, have, I have a question. So, too, I th and I don't know if this falls in line with this, this conversation, but if you look at how... Um, people who commit violent acts like murder, let's say, and let's say they're like adolescents, right? Adolescent males. And if you look at like white adolescent males who go and commit murders and then black adolescent males who may engage in the same crime, the perspective on that and what is focused on, one is focused on like criminal background and violence and that the other is focused on like mental health and we need to like help them and like say, I don't know, is that, is that just something that I'm seeing as like this perspective that's completely different or is that something that you all see too? Yes. Yes. And, and I would say it like, look at it from all angles. Like there is so much research about kids and who gets diagnosed in which ways, 
right? Like mm-hmm. that um, black children are far more likely to be diagnosed with emotional um, uh, emotional disorders. I, I don't know the best language here, so I just want to frame that out. Right. This is not my area of expertise, so please correct me here where I'm, I'm misstepping. But, um, but we're so aware that if he were brown or black, how differently he would be treated at school, right? My kid gets sent to the social worker. I get called in to talk about what's going on. They see his humanity that like having parents who are divorced or like life is hard and having big feelings and not knowing how to make sense of them. But sometimes like my kid's behavior is just straight up not acceptable. And I am like, if he were brown or black, what would, even in second and third grade, how would the school be responding to him? Right. And um, and I see my my kids go to a school that's pretty diverse. And when I'm in the classroom, I notice where are the teachers assigning the seats, you know, and I, I ask my kids, like, when you sit on the carpet, do you decide where you sit? No, the teacher says. And I'm like, interesting. All the brown children were in the back. All the brown children were in the back right? Who gets their hand raised? Like you just have to start to notice it's not only in the criminal justice system, it's in preschool. It's in the supermarket. It's in when I go into a store and I get asked, do I want to open up a credit card and save? And do I have a coupon? Whereas a black woman gets asked for an ID to go with her credit card, right? The assumption is that I have good enough credit and access to funds to be worthy and deserving of this extra discount and a credit card, but you're probably using a fake card and it's not yours, right? There's the subtleties here are like so ingrained that we stop kind of noticing them all because we don't want to, but they're all there. And absolutely disproportionately, the criminal justice system will uh, lock up and put away and punish harshly black and brown children. And and it's not just boys. Um, Black girls are disproportionately disciplined in schools. Also, there's research there that shows um, and and black women. Um, But I think about that, um, the case from Stanford, the rape case, where the judge said, like, this young, this boy's future is too bright, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so like, the we 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 prop up the potential of white children as being worthy of excusing their behavior without ever considering the potential and future of black children. They just don't get the same um, opportunity to that. So that is the part of privilege that folks don't see, um, because if you're a person that is living your life within the system, and to me, it's like you know. As a person, as a black person, I I see that privilege very clearly because my life, my learning history is different where I've had to take notice to those different things. You talked earlier about, you know, black children being diagnosed with um, certain disorders like ODD, ADHD, um, first and foremost over other folks from, you know, the school. We talk about the criminal justice system, but that really starts in school, as you mentioned earlier, um, Victoria, that, you know, we're starting to see differences in race from the very beginning when it comes to the diagnoses, when it comes to who gets expelled, who gets suspended, who really gets taken care of in the school system and those small nuances. And this is why like awareness is key, because if you are going to do the work, being aware of your behavior is probably going to help you 
day-to-day, moment-to-moment shift some of this stuff that occurs in our larger system when it comes to just deciding where someone sits. Like you are actually, like you could be likely helping them in their educational route. Um, and so those small discrete behaviors that we engage in, like, can make a world of a difference. So I'm glad um, that you were able to see uh, say that. But we don't notice, or some folks, you know, have a hard time noticing those privileges, especially if I'm like, oh, you know, my life has been hard. No one gave me anything. And it's like, well, imagine that, you know, times whatever for folks of color um, in this world. And so uh, one of the things that I, I've had to make sure to say over time is like, we talk a lot about the American system, but racism, racism is pervasive. It's like one of my favorite sayings, but, um, but that the pervasiveness of that is the world, you know, like racism doesn't just exist in America. It exists all over, but from our lands and our vantage point, I'm being me being American. Um, a lot of times when I speak, I can speak mostly about this, but it's important for us to remember that this has infected our world um, and it's so far reaching than we ever give it credit to. It shows up at every moment, at every second, it could be showing up um, in your environment. So it, it is so insidious and in every aspect of our society. I, yes, I completely agree. And, you know, I often say that the more privilege a person has, the harder it is to recognize because that privilege um, gives that part of the privilege is the opportunity to not have to have any witness to any of it. Right. Um, And, and I think that I'm underscoring the point because I think that like, I, I know that, like, I don't know what it, it, what it's like to exist in a black body. I know what I hear. And I think I have a high level of empathy. And and I think I understand each day more than I understood the day before. And I've never lived that experience. But I have lived the experience of being a feminine presenting cisgender white woman of a socioeconomic like middle class uh, with an education and access to museums and this and that and that and and being able to go about the world with such a level of comfort that I I know how easy it is to exist there and not have to think about any of the things. And it doesn't mean that there isn't challenge to your point. Like things are, are hard sometimes, but it's still like nothing compares to what it's like to live on the flip side of that marginalization and to be subjugated in every aspect of your life. Right. Um, I've been thinking about like this COVID-19 pandemic. And so to give context, I live in, you know, the epicenter of, the crisis in the United States, right? Like my county is second only to New York City. And so we, you know, I have, it's just been, it's hit very close to home, literally and figuratively. And so um, I've been thinking about the ways that my it's impacted my life, right? So going to the grocery store is a thing I've never had to really think about. And now it's, a I have to map it out because um, I, there's a wait to get in, um, you know, it's, it requires a few hours. I need a mask. I need to have gloves. I need to have, um, this, I need to think about what I need so I can get in and get out. I need to think about the layout of the store. So I'm not like dawdling and spending more time. And I'm, I'm being mindful of who I'm getting close to and who's getting close to me and my space and proximity. Right. And these are all things. And I'm like, God, it feels exhausting. Like, I don't even know how to check email after going to the grocery store, because I feel like I used every ounce of my energy 
just managing all those thoughts about like what was happening around me. Pause. That is actually what it's like to be black in America all the time, like all the time. And not even when you leave your home, because more and more the stories are coming out just the other day, a black woman was shot by the cops in her own house. You're not even safe at home. You can't go for a run in your neighborhood. You, like, I, I mean, I think that we can use this opportunity where people with privilege are being inconvenienced and uncomfortable for the first time. We can use that as an opportunity to get a window into the lives of other people if we're willing to like look beyond our own perspective enough. But like, I think about just how hard this is right now. And I'm like, this is everyday life all the time for so many people. And add on, you know, I was talking to um, a, a friend of mine who identifies, she's a black woman, but she's masculine presenting queer. And um, we were on the phone, she's in her car. And she's like, all right, I'm about to put my mask on to go into the grocery store. And she was like, like side heavy. And she just said, you know, like, you know, these white people can't see me smile at them from behind this mask. So it's real hard for me to like show them that I'm safe and not dangerous now. Right. Like, I don't have to think about that when I put my mask on. I just think about how I don't want to be sick and I don't want my kids to get sick and I don't want people I love to die from this thing. I still don't have to think about my safety in that regard of like people perceiving me to be a threat because I have a mask on. And at the same time, I'm ranting here just one more minute. At the same time, right, there, there are so many, um, there's repercussions. People, Black people have been kicked out of stores, shot, arrested, murdered for having bandanas and masks on outside of COVID. And now in New York, disproportionately, um, we're seeing um, black and brown people being arrested and ticketed and assaulted by the police in black communities for not having masks on, while at the same time, the same police force is walking through white neighborhoods handing out masks, right? The, the disparities are, it's plain as day. So anyone who says that they can't see it, I call bullshit. You're not, you don't want to see it. And I think that that's another place where we need to be accountable. Stop saying you don't understand or you don't know or you didn't realize because you just didn't want to because it's right in front of you. And if you can find out when J. Crew has their next sale, you can find out how racism is existing. Like it's, it's actually easier to see the latter than to find the discount codes for your favorite like shopping space. But I just call bullshit on that. Like you don't want to know. You don't want to see because it disrupts the bubble. And I think yeah. we have to be accountable to that. Absolutely. So it's it's uh, interesting that when you were going through the way that you felt to go to the store, in my mind, I had the thought, and welcome to my life. You know what I mean? Just to have the fact, just to think about the fact that there are a lot of components uh, related to Black folks, to people of color in this world. There's a difference you know, obviously what we know about the history of America, there's a difference for black folks um, in some way. And, and one, being able to acknowledge that there's that difference um, from our experience. And yeah, there are talks that we have to have with ourselves. Um, there, There's a lot of planning that goes into moving about freely, but not freely in this world. Um, and one, on it's, I feel like, you know, over time, Black folks have been put in a position where we have to shift our behaviors in order to survive. The conversation stays on us um, once again on the things that you can do to make it home 
um, from your day. And then, like you said, in relation to, you know, Breonna Taylor, Atiana Jefferson, the two black women who were gunned down in their home, Breonna um, Taylor was this weekend, Atiana Jefferson happened um, earlier uh, last year, I believe, or late last year. Um, but being in your homes are not safe. My point is to say that black folks time after time have been taught the recipe um, or the steps that they need to engage in to stay alive. And it's for our survival, right? That we have to do those things. Your friend mentioned like, oh, you know, they can't see my smile to know that, you know, I'm not a threat to them. That's a behavior that we're sh- we've shifted. And one of the m- most difficult parts about this conversation and one of the parts that I hate about this conversation is that piece that black people are constantly having to shift their own behavior. I do believe that black people can go jogging. Black people can relax in the comfort of their home. Black people can ask for help after being in a car crash. Black people can have a cell phone. Black people can sell cigarettes. But we have to put the ownership back on who creates the world for us. It's white folks, racist folks who will take any opportunity to see black people as a threat. White supremacy that can't see a person running in a neighborhood without assuming that they've done some type of criminal behavior. You know, racist folks who believe that they own everything, including your home and everything that you bought inside of it. And so it's really important for me that we believe that we can win, you know, rule governed behavior is so important because that's why we're shifting our behavior. Because if I do believe that I can't go running, I'm going to make caveats to that. And and we do it as a mechanism of survival, but that has an impact as well. And, w- and when we continue to move the conversation where we're focusing black folks and their behavioral change versus focusing on white folks in the um, and and their need to change the system, um, I think that we're losing something in the in that thread. And so, like remembering that racists are a threat to black bodies, like racism is a threat to black bodies, not black living, right? So racism is that threat, not black people. And as a black person, I live on this earth as I choose. And I want my people to know that we can live on this earth as we so choose. And, you know, we don't have to hide away to the shadows because we fear savagery from white supremacy or racism. That's not a life that I want to live. That's not a life that I want to lead or teach my children to live in fear. Um, But I want to teach them to hold white people and whiteness racism, white supremacy, hold, hold folks accountable that need to be held accountable because we're not causing our deaths. That's not what's happening. You know, it's the system. It's the folks that uphold the system. And so at any point in time, at any point of the conversation, just, you know, remembering to, to bring that back front and center for me is, is, is going to be important as I continue to, you know, keep breath in my body. Yes, yes. I'm like over here nodding so hard. Thank you. I hear you. And yes, like when people, when white people try to deflect, this is where like, you want to know as a white person, what you can do, bring it back, be the, be relentless and recentering back. Well, what about black on black crime? We can have a conversation about that the, the another time, but I want to talk about why a white person thinks X, why a white person thinks that they can decide whether somebody's innocent or guilty in, in a moment's notice. Or uh, what about this? Well, great. We can talk about that another day, but right now we're talking about this. Keep bringing it back because the way that racism and white supremacy works is through that. It's, it's, a, it's like a, sh- a shapeshifter. It's like sand. 
it's going to find the crevice and it's going to keep wiggling its way through if we let it. But when we don't let it and we keep bringing it back, we force ourselves and each other to like really look at it, like fucking look at it and stop trying to deflect. And it should hurt to look at and it should be painful to look at and it should feel shitty to look at. And not because I'm saying we should use shame. I don't think shame is an effective tool for anything. And if we can look at a case like this or have a conversation like this and not feel anything, it is that is an, um, an example of the trauma that white people experience from a white supremacist system because that, that's not natural. Like it is not natural for us to look at a murder and not have like feelings about that person as another human, right? And so I think there has to be room, number one, to talk about like that there it's there can be space for white people to hurt and to to feel grief about the things that we thought were true and to grieve the world that we thought it was. And we can do that, but we can't just sit in it forever, number one. And we don't like that's not for anybody to take care of but us. We can take care of that for ourselves and for each other. But that's not the reason to stop showing up. Like, I think we hit, hit those uncomfortable feelings and then we let them be the reason that we, we opt out. Um, but we have to like relentlessly be focused on white supremacy and why that is the problem. And like, also, I want to know, like, what, what makes you think? Like, w we see all these white women calling the cops on like uh, the black child selling water and the barbecue and the this, like, like mind your own fucking business. Like also, if nothing else, just like mind yes. your business. But why do you think that's your business? Why do you feel entitled to know what other people are doing? And I think these are all the questions we need to ask ourselves and ask each other and maybe not ask them in the way I'm saying it right now because they'll probably just like hang up or walk away. But like really, like when somebody's saying, but what about this? Bring it back, bring it back. Don't, don't entertain their argument. Like to me, I'm not going to get into the like the black hole of the what ifs and like what aboutism and like black on black crime. I want to talk about white. I want to talk about white terrorism. We can talk about that another day. Right now, we're talking about white terrorism right now, and just keep bringing it back in the same way you would with a kid who's learning their spelling words and doesn't do it. You have to keep bringing it back. Also, I know that example from personal experience. I hate practicing <laughs> spelling words. Yeah. Um, there was another thing I was thinking, I, I lost it. Um, I'm sure it'll come back, but, um, oh, I know what it is. I want to talk just for a second specifically about white women, because, um, I think that uh, white women are the gatekeepers to the white male patriarchy and white male supremacy and, um, and are like, getting into everybody else's business while simultaneously saying we mind our business and we don't want to cause any trouble is like the, the behavior that's some of the most destructive behavior, I think, in our society. I want to name that in the Aubrey um, Armory case, um, I'm sorry, I said that wrong, in um, Ahmad Arbery case, um, it was a white woman DA who initially told the cops to back off and not to arrest the, the murderers, the men who um, murdered him, um, because of proximity. And so when we talk about like internalized um, oppression and internalized dominance, 
you know, white women will simultaneously take to the streets about how we're marginalized. Um, and I'm one of them. So there's no shade here. Like I've been in the streets with the women's march and with other women fighting for women's um, equity. But while we're simultaneously trying to keep our proximity to power by um, enabling white male patriarchal society, because we don't actually want the consequences. Right. So we keep our white male boss happy and don't push too many buttons and then take to the streets about how we want equal pay. But we're not actually disrupting when like there's not a single person of color interviewed for a job or there's not a single person of color at any like table that we're sitting at any discussion, any right. Or the folks of color are we know, you know, because you're sitting in the room when they're getting offered jobs at 30 percent or 50 percent of this less salary than you just offered to the white person down the hall for the same job. You know, all that shit is happening and you're going to take to the streets about your own rights, but you're going to enable all of that other behavior. And I think that white women, we have to have a real reckoning with the fact that just because we're victims doesn't also mean that we're perpetrators. And we are absolutely upholding a violent system that hurts other people. And we are never going to experience our own liberation until we recognize that we aren't free until everybody else is free. And the best thing we could do is get to the back of the line and follow black and indigenous women who actually know what it looks like to lead liberation. That's my rant there. Yes, rant. Um, so you just mentioned Women's March, which our listeners know that I too um, have done my work with Women's March. And, uh, you, you know, one of the things that Linda Sarsour says, um, you know, I'm not, she works knowing that she's not free until Black and Indigenous folks are free. She's a radical um, Palestinian Muslim American woman. And um, just to be able to take that stance in your activism. So going with that, our next word is activist. Um, and thank you for sharing your modality of activism so far has been with the Women's March. And we can chat about that offline too, because we obviously have overlapped at some point. Yeah, I would imagine. So, I, and I just want to say that like, I, I think two things have to be true when, when I talk about the Women's March, that um, I everything I've learned about activism and about what it means to center the most marginalized, I have learned from the Women's March and the leaders of the Women's March. And um, I have participated in marches that upheld white uh, white women and white feminism and white dominance and supremacy in ways that that are counter to that. And I and I think that it's just the challenge that comes with an organization that's that big. And um, and so I, I want to be clear that I will critique some of the some of the, you know, the women's march, like the the pink fucking pussy hats and like some of the shit yeah. that people who participate in the women's march, how they exist. Um, I will be critical of. And simultaneously, I, everything I've learned, I, I, um, I got, it was a Linda Sarsour email from the, the Women's March of the Serve that got me um, to up my activism. And, and really, they taught me about nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, you know, I, I have learned so much. And Linda and Tamika Mallory, um, and, uh, you know, Carmen, Carmen. Preston, they are just extraordinary leaders. Um, and I have, I have learned more from them than I can put into words and so many other women from the Women's March, quite frankly. Um, a lot of the state leaders are folks that I know well, and um, it's an extraordinary organization. So I just want to be not just throw shade, but also yeah. um, give credit where credit's due. 
And, you know, one other thing I would add, uh, not that's separate, but that a learning that I got from, um, and I, again, I think this was um, also Linda, but I'm not certain. I think it's a collective belief in the movement is that we don't throw anyone away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sometimes I think that is the hardest principle to stand by. Um, because it's really easy to like unfollow, block, stop being friends with, don't talk to, or even like, like separating from family. Like I know people have had really painful separations from members of their family over like Trump's election or, um, beliefs. And, and even the most painful of those separations, um, still, it's still reflective of a system that says that people are disposable, And if we really believe that nobody is disposable, then we're saying that nobody is disposable. And I think that um, I think that that's a really hard place to exist in when, um, you know, there's such violence and and hate and, um, you know, I feel such rage against that. Um, But I I have a friend who's um, a prison abolitionist who was talking about the murder and the arrest of of the murderers the other day and, and just said like, I'm not here to celebrate um, punishment or to celebrate and because if I fundamentally don't believe in the system of jails and prisons, then, it, then I don't believe in them. And it doesn't change because they're, they're like, because it's these guys, I, the system, like the system hurts everybody who's in it, even if it hurts them like disproportionately. And I, and I, some of the biggest learnings I've had are from activists like that who center that level of integrity and mission into their work in such a way that pushes me that back to the accountability to really wrestle with why I could both say like, uh, you know, all of this stuff about freedom and like lock them up, they should rot in jail or this person, I, you know, I wish this person would, you know, whatever bad thing would happen to them. And I think that, um, back to what, why it resonates with me though, is I think that white folks love to throw people away. We love to throw people away and we throw other white people away when they don't align with our values. And, and that is also an act of privilege. And it's an act of, um, of like separation where I decide that I am better or different or like, um, you know, like you just don't know yet. And I know, which is also like exceptionalism and it, and it's like just tied into all these like really harmful values and beliefs. And, and I think that I think a lot about what it means to not throw anyone away and what it means to reconcile with harm and to have space to, um, like kind of create community and um, have some restorative practices to restore trust and community even when um, quote unquote bad things happen. And I think that um, white people, we need to do better at not just discarding the hard conversations or the people we think are never going to listen, but really like finding a new way, keep finding a new approach because people of color don't have the option to decide like, well, this is all just too hard to fight. Um, You know, certainly I I think we all have moments and, and lots of folks have moments, but like there's no opting in or opting out. And so white people, we need to be relentless in that. Like we need to find a different approach. If this isn't working, then what will and, and kind of stick, stick with it. But I, it's just another one that's really stuck with me about not throwing people away and what that really means. So can we, can we like dive into that like a little bit more and talk about maybe like, what is the difference between, um, 
like what's the difference between not throwing people away or like you would talk about like cancel culture or things like that um, versus setting boundaries? Like what are things I'm willing to do and not willing to do? Um, you know, because they're, they're just truly toxic people out there, the ones that are just not willing to hear um, what, you know, and whether it's about race, whether it's about um, gender identity, whatever it is. And so, um, and I'm not trying to fl flip it to talking about gender, so to speak, but like for me, there are certain things that are hard lines and there are certain things that aren't. And here's my, here's my line. When you're willing to come across that line, then we'll talk. It's never canceling anybody. Um, there's always forgiveness. There's always that. If, if I didn't have that, I would never have anybody in my life. Right. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so, but where's that? Like, how do you set boundaries with those people and not can't cancel, not forget? Cause you're right. They're not disposable. Well, I think you just said it. And, and I think the important distinction here is like, I think that there's a, a real important, huge difference between um, people who harm me personally and, um, and people who are harmful around identities that I don't hold or occupy. Right. And so, um, so I think that if, if, uh, if people who are outwardly homophobic, like I don't need to keep you in proximity to me because it's not safe. It's harmful. It's violent. And so I think um, boundaries to protect um, ourselves and our own identities are wildly important. I, I think boundaries are always important. Um, but I think, I, I think there has to be a difference though, between um uh, so I recently was at a, in a conversation um, with somebody that um, started using really harmful language about immigrants um, and was talking about, um, you know, like kind of spewing off like Fox News, like talking points about how Trump has helped um, the black community and uh, and, you know, why immigrants like the, the um, bans and the changes to asylum and all these things are important. But um, but he wasn't using undocumented or immigrants. He was using really harmful language that I'm not going to repeat. Um, and it made me feel sick. Like it, it's words that to me are tied to hate that are, are words that are just are violent and harmful. And it made me feel sick. But also he wasn't talking about me. Right. And so I think there has to be a difference between like, I don't I didn't like any single thing about it, but also I could engage in a conversation where we made a little bit of headway and he heard me a little bit. And then the next time I saw him, we had another conversation. Right. And I think that um, what we have to do is divorce the, the, the separate the difference between um, uncomfortable and harmful. And was it uncomfortable for my conversation where accusatory language was being used? Yes. Was it uncomfortable to be sitting with somebody who had beliefs that I think are so harmful and dangerous and violent? Yes. Did it, was it harmful or dangerous to me? No. And I was keenly aware we were in a restaurant of who was coming around. And so I was noticing when um, the person who I perceived to be brown was like clearing the table while we were eating and we were having this dialogue. And I was wondering whether it was violent for them, right? And so I was trying to simultaneously shift and say, could we use this word instead of this word and whatever, and being mindful of all of those things. But there's a difference between like, I don't like this conversation, doesn't feel good. And I don't like people who talk like this. And you are actively like, um, marginalizing my humanity. And, and uh, no, I don't think we, we need to tolerate that. And I, I but, but I, what I heard you say is like, 
when you're able to get here, you'll be welcomed. You, but so you're not like canceled, like dead forever. You don't exist. You're, you're just setting a boundary about what is and isn't okay behavior. And I think that that's important. That's, you know, that's how we like live. Yeah. I like that. What you were saying, like harmful versus, um, uncomfortable. And I'll let Mm -hmm. Denisha. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I've talked about it before, like that part, um, I am, you know, rooted and trained in Kenyan nonviolence. We had Bria Baker on the show before from the Women's Mm -hmm. March, um, who's my sis, but, um, you know, the work that we do, it requires a level of discipline. And I'm very honest to say that many times I don't have that discipline. It's a work in progress. Um, But the thing about values is that you can recommit um, at each moment. Yes, yes. Thank you. But I, when you're just talking, like, I I think if you are not uncomfortable, you're not doing the work. As a person with privilege, especially if you're not uncomfortable, you're not doing the work. And if you're not uncomfortable a lot of the time, again, back to ally versus accomplice, you're not doing the work. Like it, it requires a very high level of discipline. Um, and it requires a very high level of awareness and self-awareness and, and a constant interrogating of thoughts and assumptions. Because if, if it were easy for us to undo racism, it would be done already, right? It, mm-hmm. We have to be constantly paying attention to it. And so I just think that like the quicker that we can build the capacity for managing discomfort, the better, like, let's just do that. Um, I've often thought about how like um, yoga, like all these white ladies, I love yoga. So I'm not othering, like I'm myself included. Like I have, it's, there are so many levels of cultural appropriation and white supremacy. And there's a lot of problems with the culture of yoga. And also I'm like, if you can twist your body into that, that position, you know how to be uncomfortable. So let's now also be uncomfortable with wrestling with how this studio is harmful and how it's upholding white supremacy and how white women yoga teachers are making all kinds of money off of a culture that is um, rooted in, you know, in brown communities and um, ways of being, right? And uh, and like, so I, I think that if we're not, we know how to be uncomfortable is my point. Like I wear heels, um, I wear Spanx, I know how to be uncomfortable. But yet I don't want to be uncomfortable with with wrestling with race and identity. But like if you're not, if you think you're an ally and you don't feel uncomfortable a lot of the fucking time, you're not an ally. You're not. So earlier you said something like um, find your own approach. Can you take some time to talk about your approach? Um, You created the disrupt model. And so um, if you could just kind of walk us through that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I thought, um, oh, I want to preface by saying like, I kind of came into this work with the, um, the belief that there are a lot of well-intentioned white people, myself included, who like, if we just knew what to do, we would do it. Right. And so like, let's just find out like, what is it that we can do? And what I have come to learn is that I was asking the wrong question all along because Um, people of color, black folks, indigenous folks, um, trans folks, you know, are, have been telling us what to do forever. And that is to stop being racist, to stop colonizing, to stop appropriating, to stop being violent. But we hear what they say and they're like, yeah, yeah, but how, or, but what about this? Or we start pointing like, 
how do we make these like torch bearing, you know, people in the streets, those racists, how, what do I do about them? And, um, and I think we're asking the wrong questions. And, and so I, the way that I came to the work and the way that I think a lot of white folks I hear who, who talk to me come to the work, I think is inherently the wrong question because, um, because people are very clearly telling us um, what to do. We just have to decide we want to and that we're willing to. Um, and so the model that I have is I use the word disrupt. And um, so the D is for do your own work. The I is for interrogate assumptions. The S is about seeking to understand. The R is for recognizing your role. U is using what you've learned. P is partnering with peers. And the T is taking feedback with humility. Um, now, the first thing I always say is like the T is at the end because that's the word disrupt, the way the word disrupt is spelled. But really, like if you don't learn the humility quickly, you will cause uh, more harm. So I think um, being able to find humility and to receive feedback and to um, even just receive new knowledge with with humility, I think is is essential and has to be kind of on the front end, not at the back end. But the thing about the model is like the first four points are really about self. And so if you're not doing your own work and interrogating your, your own assumptions and seeking to really understand, like understanding the impact and understanding the pervasiveness and understanding the structures and recognizing your role. So recognizing how I am complicit in that and how I uphold it and how I participate in it and how even when I think that my inaction or silence or um, like, I'm like, well, I'm not actively participating, but if you're not actively disrupting, then you are a hundred percent complicit and participating. There's no neutrality in racism or oppression. Um, and so the first four uh, parts of the model are all really rooted in self because um, in the same ways we were using the women's march as the example, right? Like I showed up to the first women's march um, and, and I show up because like suddenly this has affected me in a whole new way, right? But if I show up without understanding, without knowing my own uh, racism and my own um, ableism and my own transphobia and my own heterosexism, like if I don't show up knowing all of those things, I end up becoming the white woman who's only ever talking about white women feminism at an intersectional march that then causes harm, right? Because when I show up into a space that's about liberation and I only talk about my liberation and then someone says, well, um, you know, talks about incarceration. And I'm like, well, if you committed a crime, you should be in jail. So I don't know why that, what that has to do with feminism. And then look at the violence and harm that, that I just perpetuated because I just don't know. And so the, the, to me, the model is rooted in like, we don't need to argue how we got to this place, right? Our K-12 system, our higher ed system, our television shows, our commercials, our advertising, our radio, racism and other oppression is steeped into every aspect of our culture. And so how I learned to be racism is irrelevant. What matters now is that I recognize that that you said drinking the Kool-Aid, the water I've been drinking, the Kool-Aid I've been drinking, the air I've been breathing has like been steeped in racism and it is in every cell of my body and arguing over how it got into my body is is stupid. Let's just work on getting it out and then getting it out of the air and getting it out of the water and getting it out of the Kool-Aid. 
And, um, and so I think that there has to be a real focus on, on understanding our own beliefs and how they cause harm and perpetuate harmful behaviors and narratives. And, um, and I think for me, some of that has looked like how I was taught to be a people pleaser and how I was taught to be a perfectionist and how I was taught to keep myself small and how I was taught to make other people feel comfortable. And all of those behaviors are what made me the most useful tool to the white male patriarchy because I never disrupted it. Um, some of the, the work of being an ally and accomplice is disrupting all of that right? To be willing, like I, I accidentally got arrested on live television the first time and my kids were watching and like, you know, I was one thing to like go and, and participate in nonviolent civil disobedience. But then when everyone I knew, I ended up on the cover of USA Today one time, like I, if, if you're not aware of what else is going to happen here, it, it like blows up, right? So we have to be conscious of all of the um, elements of ourself and our role and, and our participation so that we can engage um, thoughtfully and without causing harm. Because the reality is that um, when, when I hear white people and white women talk about like, well, what is it that I can do? And I'm like, if each of us just stopped being racist and stopped causing harm, the whole world would immediately be different. And the structures would start to become so apparent that it would be easier for us to disrupt them because we've already disrupted ourselves. So it has to be a both and. It's not only self-work. We have to also attack the systems that keep all of the structures in place. But I think we can most effectively do that when we also recognize the role that we participate and, and our own beliefs and why we allow this kind of stuff. You mentioned about, you mentioned, um, if uh, folks can just, you know, stop being racist uh, as a behavior analyst. And I think that, you know, some of the folks would uh, be listening like, well, okay, well, what does that mean? And I, I think language catches folks up. Like, obviously there are discrete behaviors that we can label or tact in, in relation to what are um, racist behaviors. And I was wondering if you could give a few examples for our listeners. What are some things that would be considered racist behaviors? This is always kind of a hard question because I think like almost everything can be tied in a lot of ways. Um, but let me think. I think the ways that we compliment people are often really loaded and tied to racist beliefs. So, um, you know, in my research, I had lots of women of color and particularly the black and biracial women talk about their hair and how when um, when they like it, like they'd say, like, if I straightened my hair and came to work um, with my hair straight or got a relaxer, I would suddenly be told like, oh, you know, you look so beautiful or you look so great. But when I decided to wear my hair natural, it would be things like, oh, well, look at your hair today. And there's subtlety in that, but it, it upholds a white standard of, of beauty, right? Um, I had a woman uh, still talking about hair who um, uh, got promoted and with the promotion had to move to a different region of the country. And when she, when she started, she had her hair straight and was living, I forget where, um, but then she got promoted and got relocated, I think, to Texas. And it, she's like, it was a totally different climate. It was so humid. I had to figure out something different to do with my hair because it just was frizzy all the time. I couldn't do it. And so I started wearing my hair natural. 
And the next time my boss saw me, she said, I just didn't look like the executive that they had imagined when they hired me. And she was like, if that doesn't tell me what it like, if that's not clear, I don't know what clear is. Um, and so I think that um, how we talk about people's bodies, how we talk about how they look is really tied to that. Um, another one that, um, you know, I do this work for a living, right? I, I'm a speaker, I'm a facilitator. Um, you know what? No one ever says to me at the end, people talk to me at the end a lot. Um, people don't say to me like, wow, you are really articulate or like you are a really great speaker, right? There's never a a sense of surprise. So they might say like, this was really great, but there's not a sense of surprise in it. And I have co-facilitated with folks of color where at the end they're being told like, wow, you are really smart on this topic or you are so articulate. And, and I've seen the dialogue happen amongst um, folks who do this work, DEI educators, right? Like how, who, what, what people get told this, right? I am always perceived automatically as being passionate and not angry. Even when I'm angry, I am seen as passionate. It, it's, it's seen as a positive thing about me, right? Like I have been promoted because I can be passionate about equity and diversity while Black women and other women of color sitting at the table next to me are getting uninvited because they're too angry, right? And so I think it shows up in all of these ways. I, you know, I gave the example of shopping before. I very rarely get asked to have to prove my ID. Very rarely. And quite frankly, the name on my license doesn't match the name on my credit card. And, And still no one ever gives me a hard time. Even when I fly on TSA, it's not a hard time. Right. There's so much my whiteness. There's so much privilege rooted in my whiteness and just the way I show up. That is um, all I think ways that that racism um, shows up. But I think about like um, when you lock the doors or when you start to feel uncomfortable when you're driving in a new neighborhood. And generally, if you start to notice, look around, who are the people that you see and do they look like you? Because that's when we start to feel uncomfortable. Um so I, I mean, I could go on and on about them. I think if you're not sure, Google it. There are so many lists and so many folks who have written about this or talked about a podcast, like how do microaggressions show up at work or what are microaggressions? Again, when you want that coupon code for J. Crew, I know you'll Google the shit out of it until you find it. So like Google the shit out of the other stuff that's important to you. You know, well, I'm glad Denisha brought that question up because I think if I was to ask people what like racism is, I'll get examples of these very overt acts of racism. Um, like they'll go back and talk um, about uh, what they think, like even we're using the term white supremacy here in such like common language. When you like look historically, that is like the, such this harsh term that is reserved for these really violent, like, end of the spectrum kind of people. And it's not the case. Like it is embedded into everything that we do. Even like if you like for behavior analysts that are looking like go to your, go to your agency. Um, if you all have like promotional materials and look at the color of the people that are on the promotional materials, um, look at if you're like, I'm an instructor and I'll get a podcast, I'll get not podcast. I'll get presentation, like um, slides or something like that. All of the names um, that, that are used in there are like traditional, like white names in a case examples and things like that. Like all of that, that is um, it's like eliminating a whole, (laughs) um, you know, group of, of, of people. And it's, it's not just like these really harmful things. And to say that you're racist is not to say that you, um, 
or a Nazi or something like that. You know, like I think that the, those are the words that get synonymous where we have these frames, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, that are important and it's important to make that distinction for, um, for, for the listeners for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, there, there's a difference between a white supremacist and white supremacy culture. And I think one of the ways that, um, one of the, the ways that racism and, and uh, first of all, this is all by design. This was consciously created these structures, white supremacy is a conscious decision, um, that was kind of created and it continues to be maintained. Um, but I, um, I think that it's important that we recognize that they're, they're the, the, the brilliance, I hate that to use the word because it makes it sound positive. I don't mean it in a positive way, but the, the genius in the system is the ways that, that they have created us to other. A racist or a white supremacist is, and we all know what we would fill in the blanks, right? The Ku Klux Klan, the person with the torch at the Charlottesville, it's, it's somebody else which then deflects again the, the it's constantly deflection deflects from the fact that like i am racist and i participate in a white supremacy culture every day all the time because that is the fabric of our society it's the fabric of who i am and so i think we have to be able to to stop being deflected and start like keeping getting it closer but but yes but it is harsh language and like so what? Like we can hear our harsh language and keep listening if we want to. Definitely. Um, so, you know, Victoria, thank you for the time that you've taken today to really talk, not just surface level, but this is really like when we're, when we're having conversations, like if we can't get to the root, like what's the purpose of this having this? Um, and this is going to be a partial rant as I get into my next question, but even in our field, Right now, diversity as a topic has started to take fold and folks are good with talking about diversity in terms of and I've said it before in terms of the brochure, making sure that there are people of color in certain spaces. But it means nothing when those folks of color come into spaces and have to assimilate to the space and they're uncomfortable and you're asking them to take on your perception of you know, whatever your reality is. And so um, it's one of the things that I stay, you know, angry. If you listen to the show, the last show was the first show that I didn't have a rant, but in our field, we have a lot of work to do in that, um, in that area. There are folks that will not support this show that will not come on this show because of how we speak or the topics that we talk about, but they'll prop up folks that look like me who will talk about diversity in a way that makes white folks feel comfortable. And that's not a shade to my colleagues who speak about, um, diversity. We are, we have, have to show up to conversations very differently than white folks who are coming to the conversation have to show up. And so I get that. Um, but I'm, I'm thanking you for like your radical, um, your radical disposition to the truth. And um, as you take us out, I would like to kind of like think about that a little bit because behavior uh, analysts, once again, talking about diversity, it's becoming more and more uh, quote unquote, popular and um, folks are being asked to come to tables to speak. Can you give any tips for white allies who are approached with speaking opportunities for diverse diversity, namely racism? Um, Are there any particular steps that you take for yourself before saying yes or no to opportunities? Yeah, I think that's a really, really great question. 
Um, you know, I think number one, and I, I ask myself this every day, I like, I really appreciate this question because it's a really hard one because it is like the, it is the center of, of my own wrestling with my own work. Right. Um, so I think you have to con constantly ask yourself, like, why do I think I'm the person to do this? Um, why do I think that I am the best person to know? Um, I think if you don't know what it means to decenter whiteness, then you shouldn't be doing it. Um, I think that if you don't have um, this, this feels a little tricky to say, because I think it's more nuanced than this. But if you don't have folks who occupy um, the identities that you're being asked to speak on, who are endorsing why you should be the person, um, that should be an indication. And just because they endorse doesn't also mean that you're the one. So I think it's a both and on that one. Um, but what I find mm -hmm. is that most often I am hired by a person of color who says to me, um, I my, my people, my whether the conference, the, the my organization, whatever it is, need to hear this message from someone who looks like you. And so we both know that that is also rooted in white supremacy. The fact that people will hear my message when you could say the exact same thing and they'll say you're angry and not listen, that is white supremacy. And, and me doing this work is, um, is, is enabling that, right? And so for me, I feel like if I know that that is true and I'm still going to show up to the, to the work, I am going to leverage that privilege as far as I can to like name it, name white supremacy, use the big words um, and really dig into the truth and, and to the discomfort of it. Because otherwise I think I'm back to centering whiteness and coddling whiteness. And I think it's very different for a person of color to have to coddle or center that whiteness or white fragility in their work than it is for me. If I'm doing it, I, I think the question needs to be why. Um, and so um, I think that I think that it requires a lot of self-reflection about um, what my intentions are. Am I is it rooted in shame? Is it rooted in thinking that people need what I have to say? Is it rooted in thinking that I can help people? Um, and I know very clearly what my why is and, and where it comes from. And so I think that's really essential. Um, and I also think that for me, I have a lot of integrity. I've said no to jobs before. I'm not willing, um, I'm not willing to take a soft approach because a group will tell me we're just not ready to hear all of that. And then I'll say, then you're not ready to do the work. Um, you know, this is the way I show up. And, and I, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I think the feedback I get is like some of the stuff you said was really hard, but it called me to, to do this or called me to listen. Right. But I, I think that, um, it's really important to, to stay in your integrity with it because there'll be folks out here, be to your point who think diversity is just a matter of what's on the pamphlet. Um, and they'll want me to come in and make everyone feel good about the fact that you've got diversity on the pamphlet or you've got diversity around the table when there's no equity or inclusion anywhere to be found within the organization. And I'm not willing to do that. That centers whiteness. Um, so I think it's a really tricky space. Um, I think that if, it, you know, what I hear sometimes is like, well, there aren't many people of color to speak on this. And so then what do we do? And I'm like, well, number one, ask yourselves why. How do you have a field that exists that ha doesn't have 
a lot of diversity in it because y'all are the gatekeepers to your own field. And I don't just mean your field. I, this, I'm speaking to any group. I, I think education overall and human development overall is white and, and largely female, cisgender female. And like, this is where I say we're the gatekeepers. Your field is not diverse because you don't want it to be. It's like when I drive through these like white liberal towns who have Black Lives Matter protests and I'm like, well, then where the fuck are the black lives? Because if black lives matter, then you wouldn't be a bunch of white people in an all white town while there's a neighborhood down the street with like shittier schools and shittier homes and no downtown where you like your black people to live while you protest over here feeling good. Like if, if it matters to you, then put, put your money where your mouth is, put your time where your mouth is and like, like let the rubber meet the road. If you are the gatekeepers, you're deciding who you prop up, who you shoulder tap, who you say has got talent, look at your organizations. If all of your diversity is in the lowest paid kind of lowest, most entry level position, why is that? And who are you promoting and why? And I think like we just have to wrestle with all of that. Again, Victoria, Dr. Victoria Ferris, uh, really do appreciate your time on this show. This is exactly the conversations when Aaron and I started this podcast that we wanted to have. So I um, appreciate you um, doing this with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I loved it. I would love to talk more about any of the things anytime um, and thank you for for being out here and and leading these conversations. I think um, y- we all need a place to start, and I think people are listening to you all, and and they're, the ripple effects they matter. And and um, so thank you for the work that you all do too. And thanks for having me. Can I just share where people can find me if they want to yeah, learn more? Please. Okay, so if you can find me on like Instagram and Facebook. I'm Insta- I'm better at Instagram. But my, um, I'm at Dr. Victoria Ferris. You can also um, text the word disrupt to 55444 if you want to just join my mailing list where I'll send out updates of different offerings I have. Um, since we've been virtual and the world has been in this wild, unusual place, I've been trying to do more just free webinars and, and virtual things um, to keep dialogues going. So the mailing list is the best way to see that. Um, I also host a monthly book club. So this month, there's still time if you want to join. Um, on May 28th, I'm facilitating the book club discussion on how to be an anti-racist by Dr. Ibram uh, Kendi, um, which if you want to talk about what it means to be an anti-racist, it's a great place to start. Um, and the last thing I'll say is I do also have a course, um, a seven-week course that follows the Disrupt model. And it's a small group live discussion. It's not a pre-recorded um, to really wrestle with the topics of disrupt and to create some accountability space to dig into what it means. Um, and I am going to be running another um, session of that course starting the first week of June. So for folks who are interested, I'd be happy to offer up a discount code for people who listen. If you heard about it here, drop me an email and I can shave 50 bucks off the, co- the cost, the, the courses. Um, it's two, $249. Um, but if you all, uh, are listening and want to join, I'd be happy to do it for 199. And so that's going to start June 2nd. So, um, those are just a few things that I have going on and would always be excited to, um, uh, engage in other ways. 
That is awesome. So there are so many opportunities and we normally give homework, but I think that you just gave homework with even telling the listeners about yourself. So if you're listening, if any part of this conversation moved you in some type of way, if Victoria spoke and you were like, what is she talking about? I don't know. Or that made me really uncomfortable. Let let that um let that intuition lead you to do something more. And so reach out to Victoria. I just text uh, your um, thread. I want to be part of the listserv. So it's simple as that, you know, make sure to put yourself on her listserv, get, you know, do these courses, like do something. So homework is pay attention to everything that you just learned and reach out to Victoria in some type of way. There you go. (laughs) Thank you both so much. This was great. Thank you. And you know, this concludes our show. Thank you all to all the listeners for committed to being beautiful humans with us. We'll see you next week. Tune in for the next show. It's Denisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it. So go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm-hmm.